The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and today it is my honor to share my conversation with former New Jersey governor and EPA administrator. Christine Todd Whitman. Governor Whitman served as governor of the state of New Jersey from 1994 to 2001 when she was confirmed to take the helm at the EPA under President George W. Bush. She held her position in the Bush administration from January 2001 to June 2003 and since then has worked tirelessly on energy and environmental issues. Her resume is extensive, and I have been a longtime fan of her advocacy for practical environmental solutions, her honesty on politics, and her knowledge of the issues. But don't take my word for it. Listen for yourself. Coming up next, my conversation with Governor Christy Todd Whitman. Listeners, welcome back to the show. I'm so honored to be in conversation today with former New Jersey governor and EPA administrator, Christine Todd Whitman. Governor Whitman, thank you so much for being on the show. Now it's a pleasure to be with you. You are our first governor, so congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) I invited you to come on because I thought your combination of experiences would be really interesting to our listeners And I thought that before we talk about what it's like to be a Republican in the national space, that you could talk a little bit about the executive role playing, you know, not playing, acting as governor and being in charge of a state and how as a Republican, maybe that gives you a little more leeway to act on climate than it does say a United States Senator who might be a little apprehensive about taking charge on a climate focused bill. I don't think it gives you any more leeway. You just have a more direct responsibility to your constituents. Um, You know, you have to deliver and you have to try to, the extent you can, look ahead and see what the issues are. So back when I first became governor and we deregulated the um, industry, the energy industry, one of the things we put in way back then was a requirement for a certain percentage of renewable energy. Now, it was a small percentage, but it was a start. Um, and that was back in, you know, 1994, five, six, somewhere in there where we did it. Um, that as a governor, you, you, can make, you can make things happen. And because the New Jersey governor is so powerful, you appoint everybody. So they're on your team. You don't have somebody there who's planning on running against you in four years and therefore is going to try to carve their own way and not, not carry out the kinds of things you were elected to carry out. So in any event, uh, just in general, because it is an executive position, it does have more power to actually make things happen rather than just sort of think about it and be part of a, of a bigger whole and trying to get something done. Right. And New Jersey has definitely seen some of the impacts of climate change. I'm thinking early on about, um, I know you weren't governor at the time, but Hurricane Sandy was obviously something that hit the state pretty hard. And in this most recent hurricane, some of the flooding in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York were, I feel like as an East Coaster, I'm accustomed to seeing the hurricanes hit the Gulf and hit Florida and maybe kind of come up to the Carolinas. But to see these storms hitting the Northeast feels different to me. And 
um, it does seem like there is an awareness that there needs to be not only some effort to curb climate change, but to mitigate, right? So whether you right. need to worry about shore erosion, those types of impacts, yes. sea level rise. Well, it's a real thing. I mean, you cannot ignore it. And uh, we have two towns that get hit all the time, but this time for Manville, it was really devastating from Ida. And it was just the rain. I mean, it wasn't so much river flooding as it was a, a flash flood. And I've known many people that were, that that's how it was impacted. Fortunately, at my farm here, we're, I'm up high enough. We do have a river that goes through, but, uh, and that went way over its banks to a point that I'd never seen before, but it receded pretty quickly. I didn't have any damage to the home, but other people were just devastated by it. But this is starting to be the norm. And we have to recognize that. And as you say, we have to do what we can to try to slow what's happening, but understand we're not going to stop it now. Right. It's too right. far along, but we have to mitigate. Uh, do you really want the federal government paying people to rebuild exactly the way they did, exactly where they did? Um, the federal government should be there to help them through the crisis, help them to find other housing. And But if they want to build right back where they were the same way, I don't think we, the rest of us should have a responsibility to to pay for that because it's only going to happen again. This is not going away. And then of course you have the other extreme, which you go to the West where Lake Powell is down to the point where it probably is going to may not be able to start to continue producing power in another couple of years. And that's going to put a huge strain on the burden because it provides so much power for in California, as well as the surrounding States. So the droughts, the fires, the floods, the intensity, the frequency, these are all part of climate change. And it, if it doesn't make people understand you got to do something about it, then I don't know what will. Yeah. And well, frankly, I also put the pandemic yeah. in that category as well, because as, as the climate changes, ecosystems change. And as ecosystems change, you have pathogens that come in touch with interact with one another that never did before. And so that's uh, another thing that we're facing. It's all part of this huge thing. Mother Nature is not happy with us right now. We've been messing with her for too long. We definitely have, that's for sure. And I agree. I think when we start to see these, um, you know, it's not if, is there going to be a wildfire in the West this year? It's when will it happen? And will it mm -hmm. be earlier than it was the years before? And we're just seeing these trends. And you know, we had a meteorologist on this show in season two who said he liked to describe climate change versus weather in football terms. So the um, weather is one play in a football game and then climate is the history of the NFL. Um, but we are in our lives seeing the history, right? We're seeing mm -hmm. these repeat incidents happen and, and now they are trends. And so, you know, there are some governors out there that I think are are definitely thinking and worrying and, and taking steps to address the issue and hopefully more will come on board. I'd love to take a second to contrast the role, your role as governor versus being the head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which for listeners is more the regulatory body. So you have right. jurisdiction over certain um, statutes and can only act within the jurisdiction of the authority that has been granted the agency. So when you were at EPA, we weren't um, thinking about climate change quite in the same intense, uh, at the same level that we think about it today. 
but I thought you could sort of talk a little bit about that. At Republic EN, we prefer a non-regulatory approach to climate change, so a carbon tax or something that's market-based, right. but um, there is a role for the EPA to play in climate change. Sure, well, when I was there, uh, climate change was obviously a big issue because you had the, the Kyoto Protocol. Um, the, it was very clear that we were never going to ratify it because President Clinton, who had negotiated it, had never even taken it up to the Senate because he knew there was no appetite for it. He, he mm -hmm. sent up a preliminary and it was voted down 97 to nothing. So it, was, it really wasn't any surprise when we as a nation said, we are not uh, gonna play in this. But what changed was, um, and it happened when I did my first G8 meeting of the, um, of the, climate, of the environmental ministers over in Italy, um, was that during the campaign and as a governor, uh, Governor President Bush as Governor Bush had put a cap on carbon in the state of Texas. And it was part of his campaign platform that he was gonna do that in the United States. And so while we weren't ever gonna ratify Kyoto, I was able to say to these other ministers, but we are gonna put a cap on carbon. And that's a big step forward. Unfortunately, there were some very strong pressures from the Hill and the Senate and the House that put enormous pressure on the White House. And we walked away from that. And we said, no, we're not even going to put a cap on carbon, which made my life a little awkward because I'd made yeah. these promises and <laughs> I sure. had to go back to them and say, ah, you know what I said? Guess what? We're not going to do it. But we're doing all these things voluntarily, which actually we were. In point mm -hmm. of fact, at that point, we had done more to reduce our carbon emissions than any of the other countries. And so it was ironic, but we, and my feeling was always, you can repackage that and and make it look like it's something new or the added emphasis of it. Take some credit for what we'd already done, but still engage with the rest of the world on this issue of climate change. But unfortunately, the way we <clears throat> sent the message that not only were we not going to um, support the Kyoto Protocol, but we weren't even going to put a cap on carbon was really in the metaphorical sense, flipping the bird to the rest of the world because they had yeah. been so involved in the past years in climate change, they were taking it far more seriously than we were at that point in time. And so even when we did this at the time, the only developed country that had actually ratified the protocol was Romania. After we sort of said, we're out of it, hands washed, we don't care, every other developed nation signed on. And I really think that was a huge mistake on our part in the way we did it, because I believe that the rest of the world was waiting for us to say, look, we're not going to ratify this, but we'll work with you to make it right. Because there's some big holes at which, with which I agreed. There were some big holes in the Kyoto Protocol. I was not for ratifying it as it existed, but I was for addressing climate change. And, um, you know, if we'd done that, I think we would have, we would find ourselves in a very different place today. It's really about leadership, right? And so I think that what we as a nation did was we stepped back from that leadership role. And right. I remember when I was working on the Hill and uh, for John Warner and we were doing climate change hearings, we heard so many times our colleagues say, the US can't act until China acts, until India acts, until some of these yeah, other big yeah, leaders yes. act. But right. also when does the US wait for other nations, right? We are the leaders, we right. are the innovators. Like why aren't we going out there and and taking the lead. And, and one thing that I tell, you know, I'm around a lot of teenagers, I have teenage sons and 
one of them was expressing some dismay over climate change. And I said, listen, I still have hope because there's money to be na- made out of solving it. And yes, you know, with that innovation and the drive right. and the hearts that we have, I still oh, it's have- a, It's an untapped potential for this country and nobody innovates better than the United States. I mean, we really ought to be taking it on. Actually, it, it's, um, it's interesting because I was uh, co-chaired a task force on the Aspen Institute for K through 12 education, uh, climate change. And how do we integrate the education system, both the hard parts, the, the, the buildings, the school buses, and the education part. And what's really exciting, because we held listening sessions virtually, obviously, all, from all across the country, Hawaii to New York, Maine. And hearing, we heard from school administrators, teachers, parents, um, and kids and so many of the kids have had these really innovative programs that they had been able to convince school boards to adopt, teachers to adopt, and even make some changes in their local communities, their, um, their, their mayors and councils. And so there's a lot that is happening, but I agree with you, until the United States takes some very obvious steps, some of which are gonna be painful, to show that we're serious about addressing the issue of climate change, we will not be a leader in the rest of the world. Telling people we care isn't good enough. And just doing the, I applaud this administration, for instance, for breaking down the silos around the issue. It's not just a responsibility of the Department of Energy or the Environmental Protection Agency. What the decisions made, Department of Housing, Department of Transportation, all impact land use climate change. They all impact climate. We all have a role to play, the Department of Education. So it's something that we can do much more with if we just recognize that we have to act. Right. Right. And I I agree. I think when we look at it as a holistic issue, so it isn't just an environmental issue. And that's a way to build more consensus, too. If you um, like, if you want to solve climate change because you see the economic potential or because that you see the transportation hook or the urban planning hook, then whatever it is that's going to get you to the table, we need everyone to be at the table now. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Um, I wanted to poke your brain a little bit about nuclear power because Mm -hmm. I know that you are a proponent of it and I know that New Jersey has... um, strong nuclear power um, part of their portfolio, their energy portfolio. And obviously if we're going to transition to a fossil fuel free, which I don't think will ever be all the way fossil fuel free, but some sort of low carbon world, right? Where we're capturing emissions Mm -hmm. for that that does admit, but we're um, putting more low and zero carbon energy sources into the grid. It's hard to imagine achieving that without having Uh, more nuclear power in the U.S., but this has kind of become a little bit of a a hot button issue. So how did you address that in New Jersey? And how, what do you see the need, what what do you think needs to happen here for more of a national conversation about nuclear energy and to kind of get beyond the knee-jerk reactions that people have still to Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and the other Mm -hmm. incidents that have happened that I think have kind of scared people away? Well, we need to get the facts out. Um, Unfortunately, it seems these days the facts really don't matter, which is very unfortunate. But I did chair a group on nuclear energy for a while and co-chaired it. 
And when we found when we went into communities and held community wide meetings and answered their questions, because they're very real questions and people have a legitimate reason to be asking them. There are good answers, though. Our nuclear industry is one of the, is the safest in the world. And if you look even at Three Mile Island, <clears throat> that was a meltdown that was largely caused by the operators there trying to override the automatic system. But having said that, those operators who were actually in the facility at the time of the meltdown, they have been followed since then. And there are no cancer clusters. I mean, they were not exposed to anything. That's how safe it was. It was a wake up call because it's never anything you want to have to see in a nuclear reactor, obviously. And they took it very seriously, and we became much more protective uh, through regulation by the <clears throat> Nuclear Regulatory Commission. But still, our record is really, really good, and it's a very safe thing. Having said that, I don't believe we'll ever see any more large nuclear reactors coming online. They just, the cost, the time delays, uh, especially because of the NIMBY, when people don't, don't want to listen to the facts. But the small modular reactors offer a huge opportunity. And those can be, those are made, basically put together inside. They come as modules, modular reactors. They can be placed down and, and they can power uh, a small city. They can power a business. They can be used around the world, especially in countries that are um, being stressed for energy and are going to the lowest cost because they don't have the money. So they're, they're using the fossil fuels and depending on them and you'd start to replace that. We can be building those small modular reactors. That's a big field for job creation and growth and we can use them here. So I think we really ought to be looking at more nuclear but recognizing it'll be the small modular reactors and now they're finding different ways to produce that power. There's a molten salt reactors. There are different ways of doing it, much safer than the big old ones, less to worry about. You can put them down, you build them, take them to wherever they're going, plop them in and, and start them up. Uh, they're relatively that, I mean, they're nuclear. So you've always got to be cognizant of that. But, you know, when you think we've had nuclear subs going around the world forever, uh, we have nuclear in all our hospitals when you get an MRI or anything right. like that. Yeah. So we're constantly uh, using it and seeing how safe it is without thinking about that's nuclear power behind that. Uh, and I agree with you. It's the only form of base power that releases no greenhouse gases or other regulated pollutants while it's producing power. And so, I mean, if you look at the total supply chain, yes, when you're mining some of the, of the parts that are necessary, you, you do have some releases. But if you look at the releases you get in putting together um, windmills for solar power, mm -hmm. for uh, wind power, and the fine minerals for solar power, uh, all of those have, uh, have some tail end releases that we have to work on. But until the, nuclear power needs, I believe, is the perfect bridge to that time when we can have uh, really rely on non-fossil fuels. And oh, by the way, I should say that one of the schools that we visited on the, <clears throat> the Aspen task force was in Arlington, and that is a, um, a zero emission. All their power is green, solar and um, geothermal. That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I suddenly, yep, yep completely. My, my neighbors did that. They have a geothermal unit, so they never have to use their, I think in the summer, it stays cool enough. They never use the AC in the winter. They have to do a little bit of heat, but 
um, yeah, that's oh, wow. really kind of the wave of, of the future. And, and I love what you're saying about how you can take the small modular reactors and just put them almost as like a filler, right? In spots right. that are needed. And, and I really think that when we make judgments about one type of energy for the whole country, that's a mistake because right. the country is so different, right? So mm -hmm. there are areas where wind power makes sense and there are areas sure. where solar power makes sense and there are yep. places that are going to need to have more nuclear and so seeing it more as a, a tapestry rather than just like one piece of matte fab or opaque fabric is the, the way I think we need to look at absolutely. it. Absolutely no you're absolutely right it's we're not a one-size-fits-all fit all country never have been never will be and no we shouldn't we shouldn't be and what needs and works in rural Montana is different than what's going to be needed here in New Jersey. Governor, how do you feel optimistic or do you, how do you feel about our prospects for tackling climate change in the next couple of years? Oh, we're not going to cap it in the next couple of years. I'm frustrated. Um, mm -hmm. There are some good proposals on Capitol Hill. When I said earlier that we have to get serious about it, one of the things I'm talking about is a cap on carbon and a carbon tax mm -hmm. with a border adjustment. There are proposals that would take that tax and put it back to the taxpayers so that they it'll help offset any increase in the gas, for instance. But in looking at it, if you depending on where you put that price, the impact on the gas could be as small as 14 cents. Um, yeah. That's still a lot for some people. I get it. But we really are. It's amazing how much lower our gas prices are than the rest of the world. And if you can put a tax in that where you take it and do the dividend mm -hmm. back to the public so that they don't feel the pinch the way they would otherwise. And then you do a border adjustment, meaning that you put a tax on goods coming from other countries, which will help push them to change their behavior. And you're taxing those who are, it's a user fee, really. I mean, you're taxing except at the other end, you're taxing those who are creating the pollution with which we all have to deal. And yeah. we're dealing with it every day. Up until the beginning of July, we had had eight climate change related, weather related major events. I mean, that was before the fires in California, each of which cost us a billion dollars to come back right. from. Right. Um, last year, the total cost of climate related issues was some $200 million. I mean, that's real money that could be used to help people make their way through the life, um, help them with the taxes they have to pay, help them keep a roof over their head or educate their kids. I mean, it can be spent in so many different ways. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's, it's hard to get people to understand how related all these things are. Right. It's, you know, when people talk about not being able to afford to address climate change, I feel like we can't afford not to, not that's to. the cost. Not. And, yeah. and going back to what you're saying about increasing gas prices and, you know, we are big fans of the revenue neutral, neutral border adjustable carbon tax at republicen.org. And that, that border adjustment is a really important component, but also if you're using the revenue to decrease some other form of tax, so say the payroll tax, then right. we see it be evening out, right? So, yes. and then the other thing I would just say is that gas prices are not steady, right? They can fluctuate. You have a cybersecurity event in one place and then suddenly gas prices go up everywhere. And so there isn't, it isn't that there is a cap on gas. We don't really 
seem to have right. a lot of control oh, no. over the price. Well, I'm always anyway. fascinated when I when I drive down the street and there'll be within a mile two gas stations with a ten cent a gallon difference, and you want to say, right. okay, really, what's going on here? But uh, no, you're absolutely right. It, it isn't a stable thing to begin with. Well, lots needs to ha- happen, and I'm so glad to have a thought leader out there like you who brings so much experience and wealth of knowledge to the table, and all we can do is keep plugging away and hoping we find that courageous leadership at the levels that where it needs to be so that we can really well, we take have the to, lead. <laughs> we have to make it happen. Uh, yeah. That's up to us. We have to vote. We have to get informed. We have to ask our elected representatives, where, where, where is the future of energy? What do you think about energy? What do you think about this? This, hey, this is an important issue to me. How do you stand? Where do you stand on it? Because until we start telling them on a regular basis that we care and that our vote is going to be influenced by their answers, it's hard to get them to move yeah. because yeah. their other sides tend to be so vocal that um, it backs people off. But if they only hear from one side and they have to represent their constituents, that's all they know. So that's one thing that we try to do is to get into the congressional districts and into states and have people weigh in with their members because maybe that is the only time they're gonna hear someone say, hey, look at this, um, you know, look at the IPCC report. I'm concerned, you know, that for lawmakers to hear that from people who self-identify as conservative is, important. And yes, I think when you look at the younger generations, they definitely have climate change as a top three issue that drives them in the voting um, booths. For us older generations, I don't think it's quite a top five issue, but we need to make it one. You're right. And it is on all of us to do our part. We're all impacted. And and I like to think that we have the ability as Americans to rise to an occasion when we're faced with an adversary and you know, I don't want, I, I hope it doesn't get to the point that we have such a disastrous natural um, no. event that that's what has to drive us. Hopefully we can get there before then. But um, these regular, as you said, billion dollar multi events that are a billion dollars or more to respond to those prices add up to, and we pay, right? As taxpayers. Right, exactly. We're paying somehow. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts and good luck out there. And I hope that uh, you New, New Jersey stays free of hurricanes between now and the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> so do we. And thank you for what you're doing, because it's very important to have conversations like this, whether people agree or don't, at least let them hear various sides of things and, and start to analyze for themselves. It may take a little effort. But you know what? That's our responsibility in a democracy. So, Price, we just had our first ever governor, Governor Christine Todd Whitman of New Jersey. Yeah, she was great. Uh, She was awesome. She had some really, uh, really interesting answers uh, to say. And one thing I did learn is I really learned that the New Jersey governor wields an incredible amount of power. Maybe that's why Chris Christie did a lot of things, didn't do a lot of things, or in, maybe in this case, a lot of New Jersey governors over the years have been viewed as um, very powerful people. Um, I did not know that about the state of New Jersey. Of course, I've never right, lived Right, and it's there. interesting. 
Like by contrast, I know because uh, I used to be married to somebody from Texas that the Texas governor actually does not have a lot of power. It's the lieutenant governor. So it is sort of interesting to hear how different states set up their executives. And I just thought she was a joy. She's been in this field for a long time. She's very practical about it. I, when she took over, when she was um, President Bush's first administrator of the EPA, and I think he had three actually over his eight years in office, she, my mentor on the Environment Committee went to become her chief of staff. And then one of my best friends also went to work for her. So in the early 2000s, I thought of her as the person who stole my best friends from the EPW committee from me. But no, she's always been really, just again, thoughtful. She, I think, exudes eco rightness to the core. Yep. And of course, making. And, that- and honestly, I'd never heard her speak favorably on a price on carbon. And I was very clear in my in, in my invitation to her that this was not a carbon tax podcast and that you did right. not have to be right. for a carbon tax to be on the show. And so when she came out and talked about needing to have a price on carbon, I was intern, my internal cheerleader was all revved up. Yeah, and then uh, when she started making the case for the border adjustment too, I kind of started coming out of my seat like, there we go, there we go. So <laughs> um, well done with her. All right, we want to tell you about some new members this week before we get to Ask Bob Anything. Robert O. in Georgia, Ray Jean L. in Virginia, John L. in Pennsylvania, Antonio M. in Oklahoma, Beverly J. in Alabama. Thank you for all standing with us. You can do that republican.org forward slash join. All right, we've told you all the benefits of joining us and standing with us. Now we want to tell you about Ask Bob Anything, and you can ask Bob a question of any sort that you want by going to Republicans' Apple Podcast page, The Eco Right Speaks. Search Eco Right Speaks. When you go to write a review, four or five stars, hopefully five, you just click that, and then you can submit a comment with it. That is where you put your question on Apple Podcast and. This week's Ask Bob Anything comes from Frisbee Web, and it says, what words or actions do environmental activists do that make it harder to engage conservatives on conversation about stewardship? We will kick that to our man, Bob Inglis. I, of course, can't speak for all conservatives, but from my experience with fellow conservatives, we're looking for practical, sensible solutions. And so what often happens in environmental conversations is environmentalists come across as uh, basically uh, postulating impossible situations or impossible solutions that just don't work in the practical world. And so best to... uh, talk to conservatives about things that really are quite practical. Reminds me of in in the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, on this call with uh, some philanthropies and and some people trying to uh, steer aid to where it's needed. And a philanthropist asked, now, what can we do to help? And the expert said, well, can you make masks? We need masks. We need people that can make stuff. And uh, I'm not sure that that expert knew it or not, but that's sort of a picture of what conservatives, in my experience, are looking for when it comes to climate change. Practical solutions. Tell me how we're going to fix this. Um, And please don't tell me we're all going to die next Tuesday. uh, Because if you tell me that, 
then, well, let's eat, drink, and be merry, because the apocalypse is upon us. So sensible, practical solutions. That's what we need to talk with fellow conservatives about. All right, Chelsea, that's this week's Ask Bob Anything, and certainly thanks to our illustrious and awesome executive director, Bob Inglis, for answering this week's question, Chelsea. Yeah, in my mind, I was thinking about how I would answer that question. So that was a really good one. And, you know, keep them coming. It's been really fun to hear and read what is on your minds and what you want to know. And as we noted before, it also helps guide the types of guests that we are bringing on the show. And I've had listeners reach out and offer their expertise or their connections to people of expertise. And I love that. It's great. I am not an infinite well of ideas for who to bring on the show. And it's more meaningful, I think, when I know that the audience is actually seeking out a certain voice. So thank you, listeners, for always reaching out. My email is open, C-H-E-L-S-E-A at republicen.org if you want to reach out. All right. What do we have next week, Chelsea? Next week, I'm super psyched to bring you some kids, not to sound denigrating, but I'm a mom. So, you know, anytime anyone is around the age of my kids, just a little sidebar before I say who they are. My aunt still calls me and my cousins, the kids, and we're in our 40s and 50s. So I don't know that that ever changes. These are legitimately high school students who are part of the newly launched high schoolers for carbon dividends offshoot of students for carbon dividends, which is a college-based organization supporting the carbon dividend. And last month they launched the high school counterpart of um, students for carbon dividends. So we'll have a couple of those high schoolers with us next week talking about what motivated them to get involved in the fight for carbon dividends. Awesome. Make sure you download, listen, and hopefully subscribe. Subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Chels. You can go to republican.org forward slash podcast. You can listen to us in a myriad of ways, but the easiest is if you have an Apple uh, product, just go to the Apple Podcast app and then search EcoRight Speaks. And if you're an Android user, have no fear. You can go to the Spotify app, free download, and you can search EcoRight Speaks right there. It's that easy. Now, Price, what if I have an iPhone and I use Spotify? You can cross-pollinate, right? You most <laughs> certainly can. I wasn't going to, as they say in Ghostbusters, cross the streams, but um, I was trying to make it fairly easy and easy and linear for everybody to find us and push me to I try, be better. Price, I try, I try. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you, everybody, next week. Appreciate you listening, subscribing this week. Again, another episode comes to you every single Tuesday, including next Tuesday, as we are barreling through the fall. And we will do so all the way up until the end of the year. So appreciate everybody listening. And we will talk to you next week, Chelsea. See you next week, Chris. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.